Even after 60 years, Carl Reiner still remembers exactly where it happened. It was a morning in 1958, and he was on the East Side Highway in New York City around 96th Street. He was making his way downtown on his daily commute from New Rochelle, where his family lived, to his office in Midtown Manhattan, where he worked as a writer for a TV variety show. On that exact spot, he recalls vividly, is where he got the idea to create and write a TV series about a guy who lived in New Rochelle with his family and commutes into Midtown Manhattan every day to write for a TV variety show. Now, the idea might seem obvious, but the way that it was executed in the form of the Dick Van Dyke show was carried out on such a high plane and with such a deft blending of sophistication and slapstick that it's universally accepted as one of the best sitcoms in television history. What else is there to say about a show that hasn't disappeared from the air for any appreciable time since it went out of production 52 years ago? Well, we've tried to think of a few things, seven and a half of them to be exact, that you probably didn't know about the Dick Van Dyke show. For instance, the actress named Moore, who almost ended up playing Laura Petrie instead of Mary Tyler Moore, the cast member who seriously considered leaving in the middle of the show's run, and the controversial episode that made Carl Reiner threaten to quit the show. I'm starting to think that maybe we should do a potluck thing. Potluck, potluck. The potluck is going really great. A potluck. Seriously. Seriously. This is the Incredible Inman's Pop Culture Potluck. Welcome to the Potluck. I'm David Inman, and here are seven and a half things you probably didn't know about The Dick Van Dyke Show. Thing number one. Carl Reiner wrote almost a half season's worth of what would become The Dick Van Dyke Show before it had a star, a title, or even a spot on the network schedule. In the summer of 1958, Carl Reiner and his family went to a vacation home in Fire Island off the southern side of Long Island, New York. Reiner was coming off of a long run as a sidekick to Sid Caesar on two very successful variety programs, Your Show of Shows and Caesar's Hour. Reiner did his share of comic bits on those shows, but he also played straight man to Sid Caesar. For instance, when Caesar did his German scientist character. Professor, could you tell me what is the most important, what is the most important single problem in space today? That's a good question. Well, that's uh, the most important problem in space today, I would say, is closet space. That's the most important. Parking space is pretty troublesome, but, but the closet space, drawer space is good. Drawer space, yes. But closet space, yes, no that. hooks, you know. <laughs> Reiner hadn't been an official writer on the staff, which included such pros as Mel Brooks and Neil Simon, but he sat in on writers' meetings and contributed ideas. He'd also recently written a semi-biography called Enter Laughing, about the beginnings of a young actor much like Reiner. Now Reiner was ready to start on another book, taking up where Enter Laughing left off, with the character's success as a comedic actor on a variety show. 
But Reiner's agent wanted him back on TV, and he was convinced that situation comedies were the shape of things to come. He sent Reiner some sitcom scripts to consider, but they weren't up to snuff. And Reiner's wife, Estelle, agreed. She said offhandedly, you can write something better than this. Well, that resonated with Carl Reiner. He would say later, when your wife thinks you can, you can. Which brings us to Carl Reiner's epiphany on the East Side Highway. Reiner named the main character in his show after his oldest son, Rob. Rob Petrie would be head writer for the Alan Sturdy show, and his co-writers would be Sally Rogers, a composite of real-life Sid Caesar writers Selma Diamond and Lucille Cowan, and Buddy Sorrell, based on Mel Brooks. Rob Petrie lived at 148 Bonnie Meadow Road in New Rochelle, which happened to be where Reiner used to live when he first began working for Sid Caesar. At home, Rob had a loving wife, Laura, and son, Richie, but Reiner didn't want any kind of the husband and wife conflict so common in sitcoms of the day. The mutual respect between Rob and Laura echoed the relationship between Carl and Estelle Reiner. Reiner would say later, in I Love Lucy, the husband and wife were against each other. On our show, they stood as one against the world. All that summer, Reiner wrote scripts about Rob Petrie's life as it transpired at home and at the office. He'd write one episode in as little as a few days, and by the end of the summer, he had written 13 complete episodes without any kind of network commitment at all, which, as Reiner's writer friends told him, wasn't exactly how it was done. Thing number two. The first choice to play Laura Petrie wasn't Mary Tyler Moore. Everyone knows the story of how long and hard Carl Reiner and the show's executive producer, Sheldon Leonard, searched for an actress to play Laura. Everyone knows that Danny Thomas, another of the show's executive producers, remembered an actress with three names who auditioned to play his daughter on his own sitcom, but Thomas turned her down because her nose, unlike his trademark schnoz, was too small. Everyone knows that once Reiner met Mary Tyler Moore, he marched her into Sheldon Leonard's office, she was cast, and TV history was made. What everyone doesn't know is that when Reiner's first script was being made into a pilot called Head of the Family, Reiner intended to cast an actress named Joanna Moore as Laura. Now you might remember Joanna Moore as the sexy county nurse, Peggy, on a couple of episodes of The Andy Griffith Show as one of Andy's early romantic interests, at least as interested in romance as Andy Taylor ever got. In real life, she was the wife of Ryan O'Neill and mother of Tatum. Reiner never got his wish. Head of the family was filmed in New York City, and Joanna Moore was in Hollywood, tied up with an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. So Barbara Britton was cast as the first Laura instead. Now granted, by the time Head of the Family was transformed into The Dick Van Dyke Show, none of the original cast remained except Reiner, who went from playing Rob Petrie to playing egotistical star Alan Brady. But the idea that Joanna Moore could have been cast originally and kept on is an interesting one. Thing number three, The Dick Van Dyke Show was canceled after its first season. After the pilot Head of the Family was completed, Carl Reiner shopped it around to all the networks. They liked it, but they didn't love it. 
at least no sponsor did. And in those days, just about the only way your show got on TV was through a sponsor who would buy the time slot for the entire season. Reiner lost interest and began considering other projects, but his scripts found their way to Sheldon Leonard, who liked what he read. At this point, Leonard, who had begun his career as a bad guy in B-movies, was the executive producer of two hit TV sitcoms, The Danny Thomas Show and The Andy Griffith Show. Leonard had a record of success, and he convinced Reiner that his scripts needed a new viewpoint and a new leading man. Dick Van Dyke was on Broadway as the Tony Award-winning star of Bye Bye Birdie. Reiner and Leonard went to New York, and the three men formed Calvada Productions, a mashup of each man's name, to produce the Dick Van Dyke Show. The pilot was filmed on the day John F. Kennedy was inaugurated as president, January 20, 1961. It was placed on the CBS schedule the following fall in a time slot owned by Procter & Gamble. As we said, at this time, sponsors played a large role in whether a show disappeared or survived. Leonard's two other shows were Monday Night Staples, but unfortunately, the Dick Van Dyke show had a much more difficult time slot, leading off Tuesday nights opposite the sitcom Bachelor Father on ABC and the Western series Laramie on NBC. The early slot was dominated by what kids were watching, and it didn't help that CBS didn't seem very interested in promoting the show. It almost seemed as though CBS executives didn't care. The network's chief programmer, James Aubrey, was not a fan. He favored more lowbrow programming, and he argued that Rob Petrie should be an insurance salesman instead of a comedy writer. Midway through the season, Procter & Gamble moved the show to another time slot on Wednesday. It was later in the evening, and that was good, but it was on opposite Perry Como's popular TV variety show on NBC, and that was bad. At the end of the season, Procter & Gamble was ready to cut its losses, and the Dick Van Dyke show was canceled. But then two things happened. One was that executive producer Sheldon Leonard did not accept that verdict. He hopped on a plane to Cincinnati, the home of Procter & Gamble, and single-handedly convinced the company executives that the Dick Van Dyke show was just finding its way, that it held great promise. He also offered to find an additional sponsor to help Procter & Gamble offset their production costs. Once he got there okay, he went almost immediately to executives at the P. Lorillard Tobacco Company and signed them on as alternate week sponsors. The other thing that happened was that once Perry Como's show took a break for the summer, audiences began finding the Dick Van Dyke show. In the fall of 1962, the show was in the same Wednesday night time slot, but it had a new lead in, the Beverly Hillbillies, the biggest hit of the season, maybe the biggest hit of the decade. It was the kind of mindless comedy that CBS programmer James Aubrey loved so he, ironically, helped seal the success of The Dick Van Dyke Show, which benefited from the huge ratings of The Hillbillies. Thing number four. If co-writers Sally Rogers and Buddy Sorrell seem like true show business veterans, it's because the people who played them were true show business veterans. Rosemary's career began at the age of three 
and for a while she was the youngest star on the NBC radio network. She hosted a weekly musical show in the 1930s, and throughout the 1940s she earned her stripes by performing in nightclubs all over the country. She was also a semi-regular on Jimmy Durante's radio show, where she did her own Durante impersonation. Maury Amsterdam was a veteran of vaudeville, and then radio, and early TV. Which brings us to thing number four and a half. In 1964, Rose Marie's husband, jazz trumpeter Bobby Guy, died. His death was a devastating blow, so much so that Rose Marie considered leaving the Dick Van Dyke show. But, as she would say later, she discovered that once her husband was gone, the only family she had left was the show's cast, so it didn't make any sense to leave. Thing number five. Despite his relaxed appearance on the air, Dick Van Dyke was a bundle of nerves before every taping. Before the filming of the pilot episode, he developed five fever blisters inside his mouth. And during the taping of subsequent episodes, he perspired so much that he always wore a suit jacket or a sweater to cover it up. Once on an episode of the new Dick Van Dyke show, Dick's character was nervous about a dental appointment and he took off his jacket to reveal a shirt liberally soaked with sweat. The script treated it as a joke, but as it turns out, it always looked that way. Thing number six. In its own mild way, the Dick Van Dyke show broke down a few barriers. Now first, please consider the context. Television in the 1960s was still largely a lily-white world, and sitcom housewives like June Cleaver wore pretty dresses and pearls around the house. But Mary Tyler Moore had the slim body of a dancer, and nobody had a problem with showing it off a bit by dressing the way most young housewives did, in capri pants. Nobody minded, that is, except a few irate viewers and a few station affiliates. It was never a headline-making issue, but there was concern and there was a bit of sponsor pressure, to which Carl Reiner and Sheldon Leonard wisely paid no attention, and sales of capri pants went up. Another controversy was threatened at the beginning of the show's third season. The first episode of that season was titled That's My Boy, and it was a flashback to when Rob and Laura first bring son Richie home from the hospital. Rob is functioning on very little sleep and very little food, and a couple of mix-ups at the hospital convince him that there's some switched-at-birth stuff going on. You probably know how the episode ends. Rob calls the parents of the other baby, they come to the house, and they're African-American, causing prolonged laughter and applause from the studio audience. That's My Boy aired on September 25, 1963, just about a month earlier, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King had given his I Have a Dream speech at the Lincoln Memorial, and a few months before that, protesters, many of them children, were attacked with dogs and high-pressure hoses in Birmingham. Carl Reiner was urged to scrap the episode, and in just as urgent a tone, he said that if the show didn't go on, he was gone. The father of the other baby in that episode was played by Greg Morris, and he would pop up in another episode as one of Rob's army buddies. He wasn't cast because he was black, that had nothing to do with his part. Same with black comic Godfrey Cambridge, who was cast as an FBI agent on another episode. 
Then, toward the end of the fourth season of The Dick Van Dyke Show, came an episode titled A Show of Hands. It opens as Laura's at home mixing a large pot of black dye to use on Richie's costume for the school play. She accidentally reaches into the pot and dunks her arms up to the elbow. Only then does she realize that the dye is permanent. She goes off to Millie Helper's house in search of a solution. Then Rob enters home from work. Of course, he ends up also dunking his hands and forearms. Laura comes in and Rob gives her the news. They have to attend a formal dinner that night to accept an award from the Alan Brady Show from a civil rights organization. Rob and Laura end up attending the dinner wearing white gloves to cover their hands, but Rob's conscience eventually gets the better of him. Well, let me quote from the citation itself. This award has been granted to the Alan Brady Show for its consistent thematic restatement of the American ideals of equality. Truth is the doorway to understanding. Mr. Petrie, it gives me great pleasure to present this award to your show. Thank you uh, very much, Mr. Johnson. I on behalf of uh, everyone down at the Alan Brady Show, I would like to express our appreciation to you for this award. And I certainly hope that we can fulfill this wonderful idea represented on the plaque. The truth is the doorway to understanding. Folks, I uh, don't really feel that I have a right to hold this particular award up here with gloves on my hands. Well, honey, truth is the doorway to Excuse me the moment there. We little family discussion here, you know how that is. As I was saying, uh, what was I saying? Oh, it was such a good idea. You were talking about your gloves. Oh, uh, yeah, my gloves. I'm sorry, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, I uh, I told Mr. Johnson when I came here that I was wearing these gloves because my uh, hands were sensitive. And that actually, I'm wearing them because I'm sensitive about my hands. I, and overly sensitive, I hope. I, I, that's a little confusing, I guess, isn't it? I think I, I, that I can uh, explain that so it makes a little sense to you. You see, my wife was dyeing a thundercloud suit for our son, and she didn't use a stick. And I came home, and of course, I couldn't have known about using a stick. As a matter of fact, I thought it was dinner at first, and it were my cucks. That's, uh, when that, I'm not making that. Uh, let me, uh, my wife and I accidentally stuck our hands in a pot of dye, permanent dye. And we wore these gloves because we were afraid of what you might think, or uh, we were afraid of what you might think we were thinking. What do you think? <laughs> Honey, let's uh, take off our gloves and see if truth is the doorway to understanding. <laughs> if you think this is ridiculous, we got a little boy at home in the same condition. <laughs> Too, and a stick. Yeah, and one of your clean towels, too. As I look around the room now, I, I see that all my fears and all my embarrassments were self-imposed. There's 
I can't wait till a day when, when understanding is between everybody such a commonplace thing that they don't have to hand out awards for it. I, I mean, it seems like understanding ought to be as natural as breathing, and they certainly don't give out any awards for breathing. <laughs> <laughs> Again, baby steps, but viewed within context, it's kind of a big deal. No other network TV show was doing this kind of stuff in the mid-1960s. Thing number seven, Dick Van Dyke didn't want the Dick Van Dyke show to end. That's what he says now, anyway, or at least that's what he said in his 2010 autobiography. But there's no doubt that when the show's fifth and final season began in the fall of 1965, both Van Dyke and Carl Reiner were being deluged with movie offers. Van Dyke had appeared in the film version of Bye Bye Birdie and Mary Poppins, and Reiner soon would appear in The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. Mary Tyler Moore also had movies on her mind. Her vision was to become the next Doris Day. So in the spring of 1966, The Dick Van Dyke Show came to an end, intentionally. In the final episode, Rob finishes the autobiography that he'd worked on in several episodes, and Alan Brady buys the rights to it in order to turn it into a family sitcom. Laura asks who will play her, and she's told it's a comic actress who resembles Phyllis Diller. The end of the Dick Van Dyke show wasn't the end of the collaboration between Carl Reiner and Dick Van Dyke. They worked together again on an underrated 1969 film called The Comic, with Van Dyke as a self-destructive silent film comedian, and they came back to TV in the 1970s with the new Dick Van Dyke show, which ran for several seasons. Mary Tyler Moore's film career stalled, and she joined Van Dyke for a 1969 special called Dick Van Dyke and the Other Woman, which convinced CBS executives that Moore could carry her own show, which she did with distinction from 1970 to 77. There were also Dick Van Dyke reunion shows and specials, of course, but the less said about those, the better. To experience the special genius of the show, there's only one place to turn, those black and white reruns the shows that came out of the brain of a guy who, once upon a time, had an epiphany on the East Side Highway. New Rochelle, New York, what a great, great city, is located in Westchester County. New Rochelle, New York, it's a wonderful place. Oh yes, it is the Queen City of the Sound. It's called New Rochelle. It's not Old Rochelle. It's New Rochelle. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's called New Rochelle. It's My name's David Inman. Thanks for coming to the potluck. See you later. It's called New Rochelle. 
They've got their waterfront all two miles of a shoreline. 